Our scripture lesson today is taken from the 13th chapter of Mark, starting at verse 32. This is toward the end of Jesus' ministry when, when he has spent considerable time with his disciples. Uh, it is called the Little Apocalypse, and one of the questions they are asking is, when will um, the end come? When will God return? When is the time drawing nigh? And this is part of his response, beginning at verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work. And commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or at cock crow, or at dawn. Or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all. Keep awake. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Emerson said, language is good as fairies and horses are for conveyance, not as farms and houses are for homestead. Lord, may the language of this sermon, guided by your Spirit, Lead us where you would have us go, rather than leave us where we are currently settled. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Over the past several months, through conversations with some of you, through my teaching and personal reading, And through my never-ending attempt to keep up with the affairs of the world, I have been reminded once again of how little we know. I come to worship, someone says, for the hour of peace it provides. When I can get off my phone and away from my screens and focus on what is really important. It is an hour that leads me to be grateful. It reminds me how fortunate I am, we are, compared to so many people in the world. I know there is something more behind the words and music of worship, but I'm not sure I know what it is. I grew up with a religion of hellfire and damnation, another person says, When I left home at 18, I left that religion behind. I've traveled the world. I've seen war and peace, cruelty and beauty. I think there is more after this life. But I'm not sure I know what it is. How little we know. 
In the Old Testament class I'm currently teaching on Sunday afternoons, I look at the lesson plans that I've drawn up based on the research and writing of reputable scholars, some Jewish, some Christian, some secular, people who mine the fields of ancient history and archaeology and comparative religion much more thoroughly than my surface walk across these disciplines can do. In class we read of Abraham and Sarah. Moses and Joshua, Saul and David, and all of the kings that follow. At many turns, we find discrepancies. Did the people of Israel take the land in the dramatic battle of Jericho narrated in the book of Joshua, in which the people marched around the city seven times, and the priests blew the trumpets, and the people shouted, and the walls came tumbling down? Or did the people of Israel come into the land as a more natural migration over time with fits and starts as the first chapters of the book of Judges narrates? Did Saul command an army of 370,000 people as one verse asserts or was it 210,000 people as another verse asserts? With so little independent archaeological and historical record of many of the people and events that are narrated in the Bible, I cannot help but wonder every time I teach this material, have these biblical characters grown in our imagination and faith beyond their original historical significance? Do we base our faith on people and events that hardly anyone else at the time knew or noticed? Or, I come to think, is it possible that the very insignificance of the people and events at that time serves to prepare the way for the faith we have in a Savior who was born to an obscure couple in a borrowed manger outside a small inn which was full in an out-of-the-way village named Bethlehem? A Savior who, though He was in the form of God, did not regard equality of God as a thing to be reckoned, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human form, humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Is it part of the irony of God that something so historically and religiously significant as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have come to be would come from a small desert region in the world and from a people whose origins barely registered in the annals of the historians of their day? How little we know. The two most recent books I've completed also give voice to this paucity of human knowledge. Alan Lightman's Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine is a meditation on how he, as a theoretical physicist, cannot quite get himself to believe in the God of his Jewish upbringing, but at the same time cannot simply rest with the proposition that all of life is nothing more than the material. 
Lightman writes, it is almost as if nature in her glory wants us to believe in a heaven. Something divine and immaterial beyond nature itself. The second book, which I completed more recently than I expected, given that it is 900 plus pages, is Jill Lepore's These Truths, A History of the United States. Lepore recounts an incident, which I'm sure some of you know, at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, when four months after the arduous process of writing, of drafting the document, the Constitution, was read aloud to all of the delegates for the first time. Benjamin Franklin, who was crippled by gout, asked that his speech in response to this oral reading of the draft of the Constitution be read aloud by another, for he himself was too weak to speak. Mr. President, his speech began. I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve. But I'm not sure I shall never approve them. For having lived long, he said, I've experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects. The older I grow, Franklin said, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment and to pay more respect to the judgment of others. Thus I consent, sir, to this Constitution because I expect no better and because I'm not sure that it's not the best. Lightman, the physicist, and Franklin, the founder, both were aware humbly of how little they knew. Concerning the 13th chapter of Mark, portions of which we read earlier, we see one of the greatest gaps between what the disciples thought they knew versus what they did know. In their day, and for several centuries, the Jewish people had been expecting the day of the Lord. That day when God would come, possibly through a messianic figure like Jesus, and make all things right. Free them from Roman bondage. Restore them to rule and glory as they had known at times in the past. Separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the clean from the unclean, the sheep from the goats. When some saw John the Baptist and heard him preach and point to Jesus, they thought that the day of the Lord was near. And then when they heard Jesus, they thought that the day would come soon and very soon. But Jesus dispels their certainty concerning the day of the Lord and concerning especially the eminence of its timetable. About that day or hour, no one knows, Jesus says, not even the angels in heaven, not even 
me the son, but only God knows. Jesus adds to the list of what they don't know the thing that they most want to know. How soon it will be before God will come into the world and make things right. Reverse injustice. End suffering. Solve mysteries. Free us from all that holds us back. And if the truth be known, bless and justify us. But instead of giving them a clock or a calendar, Jesus issues them a summons. Beware. Keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts others in charge of the manor, each with his own work, and he commands a doorkeeper to stand at the door and be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. It may be in the evening, it may be at midnight, it may be at cock crow, it may be at dawn. Else he may find you asleep if he comes suddenly. What I say to you, my disciples, I say to all, maybe even to all down through the ages, keep awake, watch. Jesus does not provide them with any more knowledge of when God will come and make things right than they already have. He refuses to alleviate the condition which bothers them of how little they know. But he provides a new stance toward that mystery which is to come. The stance of watching. Vigilant watching. Watching like a doorkeeper awaiting the return of the owner of the manor. Keep awake, Jesus says. Watch. Be on the lookout for what's to come. So back to my reading. Even though Lightman himself cannot quite come to believe in God, he quotes the last line of Darwin's Origin of the Species. From so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. The beauty and wonder that Lightman as a scientist sees in nature leads him never to shut the door on faith, but to keep watching, keep searching for a star on an island in Maine, watching in hope, watching in hope, hope, hope that maybe faith will come to him. Though we know no more than Lightman knows, our watching has led many of us to walk through that door and to find on the other side a faith we can have and watch not only in hope, but also with confidence. A confidence that we call in the church assurance. An assurance that we 
call blessed. And Lepore ends her voluminous history of our nation with the image of contemporary America being a ship in need of repair. It falls to a new generation of Americans, she writes, reckoning what our forebears had wrought to fathom the depths of the doom black sea. If we mean to repair the tattered ship, we will need to fell the most majestic pine in a deer-hunted forest and to raise a new mast that can pierce the clouded sky. With sharpened axes, she says, we will have to hew timbers of cedar and oak into planks, straight and true. We will need to drive home nails with the untiring swing of mighty arms and with needles held tenderly in nimble fingers, stitch new sails out of the rugged canvas of our good will. Knowing that heat and sparks and hammers and anvils are not enough, knowing, in other words, that technology alone cannot save us, we will have to forge an anchor in the glowing fire of our ideals and to steer our ship through wind and wave we will need to learn from an ancient and nearly forgotten art how to navigate by the stars. My friends, faith is one such ancient and nearly forgotten art. Faith is looking, watching heavenward. and then placing our gaze on earth, at sea, in our lives, and navigating by the stars that we have seen. Amen.